What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you fascinated by UFOs, the occult, strange history, and more? On October 14th through the 16th at SIR Nashville, the Strange Realities Conference 2022 will take place. Three days of exploring the mysteries of the supernatural, history, UFOs, the occult, and much, much more. Featuring presentations by Steve Berg, Micah Hanks, John Tinney, Adam Gorightly, Tim Banal, Christopher Ernst, Samantha Engel, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Melody Blackthorne, Dr. Future, Soraya Askath, Timothy Renner, Aaron Gullius, Delaney Bowers, Olaf Phillips, and David Metcalf. With workshops by Kiki Dombrowski, Ren Collier, and Michael Hughes. Come join us in Nashville or online. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Find out what everyone is talking about. Welcome, guys. Welcome to Conspiranormal. Um, Strange Realities Conference is coming up here pretty soon in October, and we hope you guys have gotten your tickets. We'll just go ahead and lead lead with that. StrangeRealitiesConference.com. But uh, tonight we've got a first time guest, and uh, I'm really happy to have him. Um, been doing some research on him for the last couple of days. Is Dean Bertram, and I will introduce him. Dean Bertram has a PhD of history from the University of Sydney, Australia. His doctoral dissertation was titled Flying Saucer Culture, an Historical Survey of American UFO Belief. He is a filmmaker, writer, and co-host of the podcasts Talking Weird and Mysterious Library, both of which are part of the Untold Radio Network. Dean has programmed for several film festivals and has been running them since he launched Australia's oldest and most respected genre fest, a Night of Horror International Film Festival in 2006. He is currently the festival director of Midwest Weird Fest in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Dean, welcome to the show. And uh, you also have a Wikipedia article, I noticed. Oh, I do. Well, thank you for having me, Adam. It's a delight to be here. I've, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really honored to be here. So thank you. 
Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, I want to talk about kind of like just like a grab bag of topics because you are you are really interested in a lot of the same type of material that we are interested in on this show. And I uh, hope we, we can kind of dig into some of this tonight. But uh, quite an interesting bio and some of the things that you've done. Um, one thing that I ask everybody is how you got interested in a lot of these topics and how that fits in with doing like the horror film festival and these type of things. Well, I, I was, a, I guess, a, somewhat of a nerd as a kid. You know, I loved all types of genre materials, you know, horror and sci-fi and things like King Kong and Planet of the Apes and Star Wars. I was a kid of the 70s, so that stuff was prevalent and it was everywhere. But how I got into, I'll share a story with you, which is more interesting than normal. I was a fanboy (laughs) because I was. But how I got into my interest in UFO belief really started and this is a, a personal paranormal story, which I don't share a lot. I've shared on Talking Weird, and I think I've shared on another show. When I was, when I was probably between four and five, you know, it's hard to tell that type of age, you know, because your memories are a little bit hazy, which is part of the whole story. I had a recurring dream or bedroom visitation, but it happened multiple times regularly, that a little man came and took me away. And when I say little man came and took me away, I should qualify. He didn't look anything like a gray extraterrestrial. He wasn't, you know, anything, even at the time, I probably hadn't been exposed to close encounters of the third kind yet, but I hadn't even thought of him as a gray extraterrestrial in my memory for at least a couple of decades afterwards, which I'll get to. But, but he'd come and he'd take me away and he was, I suppose, goblin-esque in stature. You know, he, he was stunted and... I suppose somewhat powerfully built, stockier than me, but probably about my height. He always was always kind of, as I remember him, kind of, you know, either angry or grinning. Like his face never looked like it was, you know, at peace. It always was, you know, not pleasant. But he used to take me away. And that's how, why I say that is how I've always thought about it. The little man took me away is the way I think about it. And I have no recollection of where I ever went to except one very clear memory. And that clear memory is, after the little man took me, and I have no recollection of traveling to the place, it was just, you know, from my dark bedroom, boom, to this brighter lit place, there were lots of tall beings, I'll use the term being because I don't know what else to use, standing around us. And I, when it happened, or at least in this memory, I didn't think of them as anything other than adults because as a child, as we all know, I know I have a daughter now. I don't know what it's like when, <clears throat> excuse me, when I'm at an adult function. Um, there's kids, you know, a kid will pull on your leg. It'll be running around between everybody's legs. Your daughter will want your attention or your son will, will want your attention. I assume when I was little, I would probably pull on my mother's legs wanting attention as well. And that's what I remember in this dream. I remember pulling on something's leg, which was next to me, thinking it was my mother. And the thing bent down and its face was, you know, I don't know, less than a foot away from mine. And whatever it was, it wasn't human. It also wasn't a gray extraterrestrial. I don't like saying what that thing is or what it looked like because I've seen so many horror and sci-fi and fantasy movies like we all have that I think I contaminate the memory if I start to say what it might or mightn't have looked like, but it it didn't look human at all. And it was, it scared me. And that's as much as I can remember of that, of that time I was taken. Now, I suppose the denouement of the story, which is the fascinating part. And again, I don't, I'm guessing, I've always thought it was probably 
my, except for a brief period, I'll tell you about in a minute, I've always thought it was probably my subconscious just working through something, my psyche when I was a kid. But this, the, the visitations eventually ended. And when they ended, I knew that night the little man was coming. I remember this very clearly as well. I knew the little man was coming and I knew if I went with him, I'd never be coming back. Like I just somehow knew at a very deep level, I would not be returning. So when the little man came, I fought with him. And when I say fight, it wasn't like boxing or punching or anything, but struggling with him. And I remember on top of my bed, struggling with this little man. Like, and it's a very real memory. It's, and it's very similar to other memories I had or I have from being a little boy when you have you know, playground tussles with other boys rolling around and wrestling. I have another one as an aside, which is very similar. I remember wrestling with another boy um, at a kangaroo zoo park when I was a kid in a sandbox. And the memory is very similar, like rolling around and fighting. They're very similar physical memories. Now, we all know memories flawed. This happened a long time ago. And I'm not even sure how much of it is, you know, happened in uh, the real world. But then again, I'm also, you know, a, a big fan of people like Patrick Harper and Henry Corbin who suggest this imaginal reality. So, which is somehow feels more to the recipient like it's like it's real. Anyway, this is becoming a very long story, but this is, I suppose, how I got into being, my interest in UFOs. I'd stopped thinking, I, I, I became interested in them after that event, and I never tied the two. As I was, again, a kid in the 70s, there was In Search Of, there was Bowie singing about aliens, there was, you know, there was sure. ET stuff everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. um, all the sci-fi movies, but I never put the two together. And I, I put away my interest in UFOs when I hit high school, you know, I kind of, you know, moved on and I didn't think about it anymore. Around college years, like I would have been in my 20s, I happened to pick up a copy of Edith Fiore's Encounters, which was, you know, a book that came out after Hopkins Intruders and after Streber's Communion. And when I read that book, I was like, good grief, because in the book, she's, you know, a, a psychotherapist who deals with supposedly abductees. And she, there's all these scary stories about alien abduction. And she writes at the beginning, you know, you might discover when you're reading this book that you have forgotten memories or you'll remember a dream or you'll be, you should keep a notebook because if you're reading it and you're, you know, your heart starts beating fast or you feel uncomfortable, you know, make records of when this happens. So she kind of set you up in the introduction. If you have any adverse reaction, you're an abductee. I knew nothing about the field at this stage, really. Um, and I just started to think, my, and uh, the little man memory came to my mind. I was like, my goodness, am I an alien abductee? And I don't, to qualify, I don't think I am an alien abductee, but um, that's, that's what I suppose drove my initial genuine adult interest in the UFO phenomenon, because as a result of that book and as a result of my own uncertainty about my experience, I started just consuming everything I could. And eventually that led to me thinking, I'm spending all this time reading UFO stuff. And afterwards, I discovered Keel and Valet and people who made me think about the topic a lot differently to the more nuts and bolts ETH people. And I thought, I could do this academically. I, why, why spend all this? time just reading about this and thinking about it, I might as well, you know, put it to some use. So that was what I suppose really drove me to get into it at an academic level. In looking for your thesis, I was looking at some other websites trying to find it. And Dr. Michael Heiser actually has a pretty good summary of a lot of these kind of like thesis that are based on UFOs and ufology. And it's kind of surprising how many people actually do that. And, um, you know, like Dr. David Jacobs, he did his, that was his thesis about it. Um, 
so your thesis uh, was specifically really about like a survey of American UFO belief system. So what made you pick that over some other country or like your home country? What made you pick the American experience specifically? Well, I think the American experience is the experience, at least on the broader consciousness idea of what UFO belief and extraterrestrial visitation is. Now, I'm very conscious that if you go to South America, you get different experiences and you go to maybe Africa, you get different experiences. But if I had to hone down on something, I was going to hone down on what seemed to be the Rome of the day. You know, if I was writing about, you know, thinkers around the time of Christ, I would have been, you know, I would have been writing about Rome. This was the, this was the, sure. I suppose the, um, the ground zero of UFO belief. And also I was an American historian. I mean, I trained, I'd done other courses, but I trained primarily in my undergraduate degree in American politics and in um, American history. That was my double major. So I was kind of, that had prime, even though then I hadn't ever thought about doing anything on the UFO just, topic. But- just as an aside, as someone that's from Australia and studying American history as extensively as you have, that must give you a really unique perspective. I think yeah, probably. I mean, I, I love this country and I think being aware of its history has made me love it more. It's like all countries, it's flawed, but America has done a better job than anywhere else of I think addressing problems and, and and reassessing and moving forward. There's something very unique about the American experience. We were mentioning briefly before the show about the French Revolution and the American Revolution. If you look at the changes that happened from the American Revolution, as I've mentioned, it was a fairly bloodless revolution. Now, of course, the Civil War was the reverse. It was very, very bloody. But right. that initial big change compared to France, I mean, that resulted in Napoleon destroying half of Europe. You know what I mean? Like, it did, we, we didn't have to do that here. There's, a, there's something about the American experience, which is about reimagining oneself, I think. So I've always really appreciated that. Yeah, that's interesting. I would just, I just wonder how, you know, that'd be, that's a whole like other range of discussion, but just, I just wonder how that you don't have a cursory kind of uh, grasp of American history. You have a big grasp of American history because you have a PhD in it. And so, yeah, that's, that's interesting. But what goes along with that is what makes the, the American UFO belief really unique. Like, is there something that makes it more unique than say another country's would be? Absolutely. And what that is, is I think, well, not I think I know. <laughs> That's rather conceited, but I do. It has an awful lot to do with the post-war years onwards. So you can't talk about UFO belief, almost period, certainly not in America, without acknowledging that it comes to exist during the early days of the Cold War and the early days of the space race. And America was the foremost country in the West involved in both of those operations they were you know they were the main bastion against communism and they were also the main people racing for the moon in in the in the west so mm-hmm. people living in america lived far more i th- think focused on that position of america in the new global world order that had sprung up post world war 2 and as a result the type of national security state that became established in america 
coincides with the birth of the flying saucer phenomenon and with Roswell. You can't talk about Roswell and you can't talk about any of the ideas following without understanding that, yeah, this is this is born at the same time as the National Security Act's written. This is born at a time where American democracy, in a sense, closes or spaces close. So Area 51 and the idea of Roswell bodies and things being recovered and shipped off and hidden and the idea of Hangar 18 in the early days and the idea of all this government secrecy and the MJ-12 and everything else, which gradually from 47 onwards into the 90s grew to be this incredible X-Files type mythology, which is what I always use because people tend to know what X-Files means. That belief system couldn't have been born out of a country which didn't have the, the national security state as along with that kind of intent interest in space exploration in the early days. Maybe the USSR could have occupied something like that, but they didn't have a free press in order to, uh, you know, get these ideas around. And also there it's not a there it's not an allegory. You know what I mean? Here it's kind of an allegory for the and I'm not saying whether it's real or not, let's forget let we can put that aside, but it stands very much for what's happening and a secret level and where we need to find out what's going on in that base. If you went up to a secret base in Russia and asked to see what was in it, you would have just been disappeared. I mean, that's the reality. Wherever you sit on the political spectrum, you could you so the free press is part of it. The other thing is there's no Donald Kehoe able to be yeah, to be able to be petitioning the government for secret information, you know, forget straight about to Gulag. It. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much what would have happened. And there were, of course, there were scientists who were interested in the UFO phenomenon um, in, in Russia, but it wasn't handled in the way that our government knows all the secrets and let's pry it out of it, which was always part and parcel of the UFO experience in America. Forget about the reality again, even from the very early days, like of, you know, of of Keo or even beforehand, even like, you know, when uh, Kenneth Arnold's investigating at Maury Island, there's this idea that people are, you know, covering up things and there's a secret and then go through to Kehoe. Well, it isn't X-Files level paranoia yet. It isn't the government, are, you know, in allegiance with some aliens which are abducting us on mass and hiding us under the Dulcie Mesa and experimenting on us or whatever the devil it becomes. But even then, Kehoe's quite clearly saying the government know about this, they're hiding it. Maybe it's for national security, but surely they can give us some of the secrets. So it's so tied. It's so tied up with the, with the, the deep state, I guess, for lack of a better term, that it, you, mm-hmm. can't even, you can't even talk about UFO belief without talking about that, I don't think. That's a very good point, yeah. You think because of all that, a more conspiratorial bent to a lot of the UFO material in in the United States? Yeah, absolutely, I think. that There's lots of academics who've written about the paranoid strain in American thinking. Again, before the show, we were talking about how the Illuminati is looked at and, you know, whatever else. And you can trace these ideas of a belief in conspiracy and how it's always been part of the American experience and then how it becomes part of the the American UFO experience. But I think some of it is fair. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying there really is a UFO conspiracy, but again, I think when you live in a culture where you can't get in this secret UFO base and where's well, the secret, secret US base, which is presumed to be a UFO base, or you can't get access to this document, or you get a Freedom of Information Act document, which is so redacted, you can't even see what it says. When you have these secret spaces, I think that it's going to, to, to formulate more and more conspiracy theory. And of course, Speaking as an American historian, often people talk about the American Civil War being the formative event in American history. I think people are right, incidentally, as a historian. I think the formative event in American UFO history is the Condon Committee report. 
I think that that has shaped the way the UFO community and ufologists and UFO writers have looked at the UFO experience up until recent Tic Tac times where there seems to be a, a reinterest in it by the government and the mainstream media. I think the, I think the Condon Committee, when the University of Colorado released its report, and of course there was a scandal of a low memo before, which had low saying, I think the trick is to present that we're doing a genuine investigation here to the US public, but give a nod, nod, wink, wink to our friends in the scientific establishment that we don't expect to have any chance of ever finding anything out about UFO reality. I think all of that made the UFO community do two things. I think it made people like Jacques Vallée go to, to hell with you and to hell with our science. I'm throwing it overboard and I'm writing passport to Magonia. And I think it made other UFO believers go even further down the conspiratorial rabbit hole that this is a cover-up still. We, we didn't trust the Air Force. Now we can't trust the Condon Committee. We can't trust the establishment. We can't trust anybody. So that really, that really is, I, again, I think it's the, I think it's the, the, key, the, 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 the key event of modern American UFO belief experience is the Condon Committee. And that's where more conspiracy stuff is a result of as well. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely a watershed because, I mean, it takes it from where there's any official kind of interest in UFOs. And, and, and that's come back now in recent years. But, but before you had Project Blue Book and you had these, these you know, federal government funded or military funded research projects. And then after that, it was, you know, the Condon report was pretty much case closed. So yeah, I do see what you where you're where you're going with that because there's definitely, I guess from Condor Report was like 1969, I think. So there's 47 to 69, and then there's 69 uh, onward from there. Maybe the Tic Tac, maybe Tic Tac's the next big thing that changes it. And the result of that, the idea that now we're having hearings in Washington again, you know, now the media take it seriously again. Now the, the Department of Defense is addressing it again. So I think when somebody writes a future UFO history, they're going to they're going to see you're right that spot from from 68 69 with Condon it's, there's going to be this kind of line up into tic tac and then there's going to be this who knows what the future holds but there might be you know another chapter i suspect started started then yeah and and i mean a lot of it right now there's it's 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 kind of a mess but i i definitely think that at least I'll, i guess you say like there there is some seriousness to it i don't think they're ever going to come out and say that it's little green men or anything like that but at least you say that the, the acknowledgement is there that there's something weird going on and i think i think that point is, a, is to get back to the american thing quickly why it's so uniquely american or why i'm interested in the american point again we have fallen into a trap again. It is a mess again because there's this assumption now, oh, the government. So it's still the same assumption, just more positive from the UFO community in a way. The government still know everything. Disclosures here. Keogh had been saying disclosure was around the corner in the 50s, and now people are still saying disclosures around the corner. But right. there's still this idea that the US government knows. You know, like that's the that's one of the main probably takeaways from Tic Tac. They know that's where we've got to have these hearings. Somehow they know. And incidentally, like Valet said so long ago, they might very well know nothing. Alternatively, they know everything. Alternatively, there are no ETs or no ETs that they're interested in. And the Tic Tac video is just some black ops project or some psyop or something else. And they a, a compartment of one of the branches of the defense department or defense industry know exactly what Tic Tac is. So, I mean, and we're, we're not going to know. And even if there was a disclosure, 
I don't understand why the UFO community who haven't trusted the government forever would be excited if all of a sudden they said they are extraterrestrials. I thought you were lying to me since, you know, since the 50s. You, now I believe you that you're telling me the truth just because you tell me what, what I want to hear. So there's no way out of it, really. <laughs> it's very pessimistic, but it's true. Yeah, that is true. That's a, I think that's a very good point. There is a very religious aspect to the disclosure movement. Absolutely. And I mean, there's a, there's a literal religious aspect. If you, I, I, I don't want to say anything bad about anybody in particular. And I like some of Stephen Greer's stuff. I think his, I think his cosmic hoax documentary, I think the stuff which was about the US government knowing about, about a lot of it being their own technology, I think a lot of that's probably dead on. I really do. But of course, the other side of Greer is a genuine religiosity, like a, you know, a, an Eastern guru type religiosity where we're, we're calling the star people down. So it's interesting that you get that clear, I suppose, approach to disclosure with that clear belief that the Star Brothers are here to help us. That's that's as naked as a religion as I could almost see, you know? Yeah, that's very, very true. I gather from watching some of your videos, especially the book videos, that um, you're not purely an extraterrestrial hypothesis kind of guy. There's, yeah. Especially if you mentioned valet and this, and we, you know, we we were talking before about it, but our good buddy Joshua Cutchin, you know, there are those folkloric kind of aspects around UFOs. Big question I wanted to ask was the influence of folklore upon UFOs and alien abduction, because we could make the case that we might be dealing with two separate things. But those inf- that influences on the past folklore that influences those memes. And then now, in turn, going into the future, UFOs have produced their own kind of folklore. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. I think the the influence of people like Keel and Valet on my thinking is obviously considerable. I don't think you can look at the UFO phenomenon as a phenomenon, or the UFO phenomena, because let's be honest, I, it's very likely more than one um more than one thing anyway we can get to that as well in a minute but you if you try to approach it the way say bud hopkins did the late bud hopkins who would never ever for a moment contemplate that et abduction might be similar to things which were going on in fairy faith that that's also i i'm news and exaggeration i met bud he was fine i spent some time with him he was very friendly but if you talk to him about the potential of there being a correlation between alien abduction phenomenon and fairy abductions for example you just say that's stew pot thinking there's no there's no pots of gold or rainbows at the end of an abduction story well there's very few pots of golds and rainbow in any fairy stories i've ever read, read right. as well right. so i i i think it, for us to approach it if we want to approach it phenomenologically and not look at what's gone on in the past and as you said joshua kuchin does that very well of course valet had done that in the past you know keith thompson john keel um, ted holiday a lot of people have really done some great work on that. Thomas Bullard, lots of people have. I'll, and I'll get to the UFO being a new folklore in a minute because I think that's the case. I, I, I think, I think more and more that that was my little daughter in the background saying, "I'm here, Papa." She's hiding behind the green screen. She was downstairs being good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, th- I think more and more, it's something I'm actually, I'm actually reworking my dissertation or parts of it into a, into a book at the moment. I've been doing it for a while. And one of the things that I'm very conscious of is people like myself and lots of others have stood really 
in the craters which were the thought, the result of the thought bombs that John Keel and Jacques Vallée and people like that threw into the UFO community. Like those, that, those books are devastating. When you read them, you're like, how could anybody read this and think about this and look at the correlations and just still just ignore it and go full ETH without even, you know, considering these other, these other options. They, they were such important books, but I think so many of us, myself included in many ways, not academically, because academically I tried to, you know, not necessarily favor any position, but my own personal beliefs. I think I've often just stood in those craters, which those thought bombs, you know, that those thought bombs made and just go, well, we know it's a control system or we know it's there's these folkloric antecedents or we know it's the super spectrum or we know it's ultra terrestrials, whatever even that means. And ufology just moved on, you know. Look, I mean, look at Valet's latest book. Look at Trinity. He's even moved on. I think there's real problems with that book, but that's another, that's another story. And I, I, I can only say that. I, I'll say that because I respect Jacques Vallée so much. And I don't think I should say a book of his is wonderful if it isn't because almost everything else I've ever read of his is. But ufology has moved on from that, that folkloric comparison. And maybe it's time for those of us who are in the more you know, psychosocial or social psycho, psychological type positions to move on a little as well. Now, I'm prepared to say it all might be something which is just some sociological, psychological manifestation and or the vast majority of it is. Again, there might be lots of phenomena. But I, I think we're doing ourselves a great misservice not to start reassessing some of that folkloric antecedent. So I'll give you an example. This sounds crazy, but it's something I've thought about. And this is just a thought experiment. And Mac Tonys did a little bit of it in the crypto terrestrials, but he still thought they had a technology. What if there was a supernatural race? And we don't like to talk about that at all. We like to say if there were fairies and they were technological, you know, the way Tony suggests or the way ancient astronauts suggest they had a technology, you know, whatever. They were able to use cloaking devices like the Klingons or something when they hid from us or, you know. But what if there was a genuine supernatural race that did coexist next to us? And it is now the same race which is abducting people. And the way that fairy faith talked about fairy glamour, in other words, if you grew up in the Emerald Isle, 200 years ago, you knew every encounter. If you had an encounter with the fairies, it was all BS. That magical castle in, that you visited was just a, you know, a dirty, you know, cave in a hillside. That wonderful feast was just horse dung. That beautiful fairy was just an old crone. It was all lies. The glamour, the delusion was, um, was just all encompassing. And yet today when folklorists look at the similarities between, and when I say today, I mean going back to Valais in 69 and um, the passport to Magonia, but we should have moved on, I think, again. But when we look at those folkloric you know, antecedents, we go, oh, they abducted kids as well. Oh, they did this, they did that. May- shouldn't we have walked away where, or shouldn't we have started to look at, well, what was the main thing the fairies were known for? Their very name means, the name fairy comes from the actual act of the act of the glamour that they spun. I was only reading a Catherine Briggs Encyclopedia of Fairies again the other day, and she talks about it in there, how their their very name is about the power they have to deceive people. So if we're looking at these antecedent um, examples, folkloric examples, and we, we're not acknowledging that maybe everything they showed back then was BS and everything they're showing now is BS, this might. This is, again, a total thought experiment, but maybe they're the things we should be looking at. Maybe we should be saying, how do we take this type of um, this antecedent analysis to other directions other than just feeling good and patting ourselves on the back because we've recognized that both mm-hmm. fairies and ETs abducted people? Oh, there's a similarity. What does that prove or solve? Nothing. 
I don't think it gets us anywhere. And to the second point, I know that was long-winded. I'll be quicker on this one. Is is UFO belief the new folklore? Let's throw let's throw the phenomenon or a phenomenological approach aside for a minute and just look at it culturally. It's definitely the new folklore. The only difference is the folklore has been hijacked, not necessarily intentionally. It's just the reality of a mass culture. It's mm-hmm. been hijacked by cable television and by motion pictures and by um, by all of these popular presentations of ET belief. So it's very difficult to, to rewind phenomenologically from it. It's very difficult to try to take a phenomenological approach and say, well, yeah. what did they really see when what they saw was on the X-Files last week? Do you know yeah, what I mean? So totally how- mediated. Yeah. So, so, but it is, it's definitely folklore. It's just, it's a mediated is the perfect word. It's a mediated folklore now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it has, it, it's definitely is in, in its own form. For sure. Uh, and just like you said, I mean, a lot of stuff that was published in the 80s, the Bob Lazar material, John Lear, and all, all the stuff that these guys did, and some of this, like, you know, the uh, the Benowitz material, it all just gets thrown into this stew and this pot, and then out comes something like the X-Files, because Chris Carter, John Lear, I think, yeah, John Lear, and all, all the stuff that these guys did. And some of this, like, you know, the uh, the Benowitz material, it all just gets thrown into this stew and this pot. And then out comes something like the X-Files because Chris Carter decides that he's going to, you know, use all the material. And that further, I guess, influences the, the culture as a whole about what they feel about the, the UFO phenomenon and the alien abduction phenomenon and all that. Uh, so yeah, it definitely has become its own source of folklore. You were talking earlier about this possibility of, of a supernatural race, and uh, you mentioned that in one of the videos today, I believe. The, I think it was the one about valet that I watched, and the djinn comes to mind. You know that that was a supposedly created race alongside man that God created, and that's a major world religion that takes that as as a, as a tenet. So I think that's, I think that's pretty interesting. And you mentioned before Mike Heiser, his work's just fantastic. It really yeah. is. I think people right. who are in this field should spend more time looking at height, like start with um, what is it? The unseen realm. I mean, that's a great jumping off. Is that the title of the book? I've got to say yeah, the unseen yeah, realm. Unseen yeah. realm. Great because book. Yeah. to speak about gin and fairy and the like, Christianity has, done a very strange thing, mainstream Christianity anyway. It, it accepts a, a key supernatural tenet, or a couple of key supernatural tenets. One is that there's a creator God, and of course, the most important one native to Christianity, that his son, who is also God, came to earth to die for our sins, and as a result, we can all have you know eternal life. That's an incredible supernatural concept, right? But then not to want to talk about the other supernatural aspects of the Bible, talk of the divine council or the gods of the nation or you know the, the sons of God in Genesis who come down and breed with women. Mainstream Christianity doesn't talk about any of that anymore. But so there's another tradition which suggests these supernatural things have been with us for a very long time, interacting with us, messing with us, tricking us. So it's 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 very cross-cultural. And again, it's easy to fall into that folkloric, you know, comparative hat and just go, okay, well, it's the same, it's the same kind of thing. But if you don't take it anywhere else, you're still standing in that crater, just you know, shaking your fist, really. Yeah, agreed. But uh, just quickly, too, I just have to very yeah. quickly say, because you made an awesome Please. point when you mentioned Benowitz, when we were also talking about folklore being mediated, that might be the difference with some of this folklore today as well. There's a very good 
case, I think, to be made, and it's a case I'm happy to make myself, and I agree with it, that most of modern X-Files mythology ufology, again, the, the idea of crash sources and secret underground bases and MJ-12 documents and, you know, all of this type of stuff was created by a small cadre of guys, maybe from with higher up intelligence pulling their string or maybe just lower level intelligence operation with some of their assets playing around with these ideas. And of course, we're talking about Richard Doty. We're talking about William Moore. We're talking about the rest of the Avery. Initially, we're perhaps most familiar with it because of the manipulation they did to Benowitz, but also to Linda Moulton Howe and to other people. And then the, the, the greatest irony, of course, is at the MUFON Symposium in 1989, William Moore, arguably one of the most important ufologists of the day, gets up and admits to all of this stuff, being involved in all of this stuff. And instead of what ufology should have done, said, well, we better throw a lot of this stuff overboard or really reconsider it. No, we go into a decade of the 90s where this stuff is more prevalent than ever. The stuff that was created around the Benowitz you know, spin and everything else, that becomes modern UFO belief. And so maybe not only is it mediated by Hollywood, and of course, there's um, there's Robbie Graham's book, uh, Silver Screen Sources, as well, that suggests that Hollywood relationship was a little bit more actually planned, with the CIA being involved in in um, interjecting this type of mythology. But I don't even think you need that mechanism, as true or not true as it might be. You can just look at Hollywood picking up on the popular tales in ufology, which again was Lear and mm-hmm. was Bob Lazar and was you know the, all the stuff around Benowitz and all every the first UFO books I was reading had all of this stuff in it when I became interested again, like the Timothy Good books. You couldn't read any of the, the materials in the 90s and not under, not be subjected to this mm-hmm. conspiratorial history of ufology. And so perhaps, perhaps our folklore today was actually intentionally created. That's even worse than it being mediated, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. yeah. You, um, you had Richard Doty on your show, didn't you? I did have Richard Doty. So what were your impressions uh, of speaking to him? I like Richard Doty a lot. Like personally, I mean, I was very grateful because we were very early on in the show. Then I was amazed that he he did it. To be honest, I I I don't want to I don't want to say anything which is vicious because I like Richard. I don't think a lot of what Richard told me was the truth in that show. I didn't expect a lot of what Richard <laughs> would tell me would to be yeah. the truth. And again, right. a lot of <laughs> you're dealing with a disinformation. Uh, yeah, specialist. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But you know what? People, and I even, I can remember, I won't say who, but a couple of people in the community even gave me a hard time at the time. Oh, you're talking to Dodie. And I don't even think I'm in the community. I'm like an academic who, you know, is interested and still hanging around. But, um, but some people gave me a hard time. Oh, we da, 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 Dodie's don't, whatever. I would rather talk to Richard Doty than somebody who seemed totally clean in the UFO community who knew nothing. At least Doty might be slipping in, mm-hmm. you know, some item of truth because he knows. That doesn't mean he knows the bigger X-Files conspiracy. There might not even be one. But he was there at Ground Zero creating this stuff, for goodness sake. Yeah, and, and, and I would really say, I mean, uh, people would fall into a conspiracy there, but I really think that, like, they did that for a very specific purpose, which was to cover up, what, what were they doing? Like drone technology or laser technology? Uh, probably some like, you know, pre-SDI kind of stuff. And they did that for that one specific purpose to kind of get Benowitz off their back, to make him think that it was aliens. And, and uh, you know, and it, just, job it just ballooned from there, you know? 
And then you, you, what I find interesting though, on top of that, because I agree with all that, I think that's a that's a very spot on analysis. But I wonder, like I, I, I asked Richard on the show, and I think he denied having anything to do with it. But I know the documentary Mirage Men makes a very strong case that Doty was also the person who totally behind the Serpo story, and he's out of the service by then. You know, so let's just say for a minute he was he he denies it, but let's say he was the person who initiated the whole Serpo legend, the idea like at the end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, yeah. we sent up our astronauts and they left behind some of their ETs. Let's say Dodie did create that. If he created that, then why? Was it just because it's fun to still play with the UFO community? Or was it because he's still operating in some sense that they want this story spun? You know, I mean, when I say they, I mean the AFOSI or whoever he still or might not still be working for. So yeah. then it becomes a whole other can of worms. Were these people just rogues and they were just doing, you know, they just went rogue and were doing their own stuff after that Benowitz story? Or were they still spinning this, these type of stories for some greater purpose, which we might never know? Yeah. And you made the point in a podcast that I listened to, and I've heard this idea before that some of this is to plant information in certain sectors and it's really a communications device are you actually tracking what we now call memes to see how they percolate into the society and whether and then there's probably a psychological warfare aspect to that to where other countries will pick that up as well when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I think Greg Bishop makes a point of looking yeah. at some of those things in um in I don't know if it's in Project Beta or if it's in what's the what's the collection of essays that came out after Beta. Anyway, I think Bishop talks about some of that stuff quite extensively as well, which is worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, I've heard him speak about that before. It's 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 very very interesting stuff, and it's it's definitely a uh, it's definitely a shadow world. That's for that's for sure. I want to talk a little bit about these books that you talk about. And there's one in particular that I kind of wanted to get into with you about uh, The Interrupted Journey. Uh, this is the Betty and Barney Hill mm-hmm. case. And uh, this is something that I've recently been looking into again. And I'm curious about your thoughts about that book. I've never read the book, but Fuller has some interesting connections and some other things that he wrote about. The- yeah, as far as far as the interrupted journey itself, and as far as the whole Betty and Barney Hill story, of course it's so important because there we see a birth of one of these new folklores that we're talking about. And forget right. about the reality of fairy abductions in the past, or somebody pulls up some story supposedly from 1939, which they didn't hear till, from their grandfather till 1980 anyway. But there was an abduction just like the Hills back in 39. I hear that kind of stuff all the time. But as far as something recorded and put out there and to become part of the popular consciousness, which wasn't just science fiction, because again, you can see those type of tropes in earlier science fiction movies, which I'm sure had an impact on Betty and Barney Hill. And Martin Kottmeyer writes an awful lot about those kind of connections as well and does a very good a very good job about it. But to just look at the book as a standalone or as the event as a standalone for a moment, 
you have a case where the actual abduction itself is only ever remembered either in dreams or through hypnosis. There's a genetic component, i.e. Betty gets a supposed pregnancy test with this painful needle put into her belly, and Barney supposedly had semen withdrawn, which isn't in the first edition of the book, but I think it's in maybe the second, and various other ufologists, including David Jacobs, said that that Betty told him in confidence or told him later, but there's a number of people who, who recorded that after the book. So anyway, there's a gynecological or a reproductive element. There's, right. um, there's the fact that it's only remembered properly under hypnosis. It really is the birth of the gray extraterrestrials. People look at it and go, oh, well, you know, it's not, there's other examples and there's hardly any other examples, certainly none that had that impact. And you can, again, you can look at the book and you can see, well, were, were they really even gray extraterrestrials? Because of course, at one stage, I think Barney describes them as redheaded Irishmen. At another yes. stage, he describes them as Nazis. I think at one stage, maybe Betty says they have big noses like Jimmy Durante, the famous comedian. At another stage, they remind her of Mongoloid children. But ultimately, the original cover art of that book and some of the descriptions in that book talk about them having a gray skin pallor, you know, weird wraparound eyes, all of this kind of stuff. It really is where we get that first um, first the narrative that we're used to in alien abduction stories now, you know, missing time, being taken onto a craft, probed and experimented with by, you know, a crew of, of, of little grey men, essentially. So for that reason alone, it's such an important book. Um, I, I tend to agree the the psychiatrist who, who John Fuller had um, extensive access to, who was the person who did the hypno-regression on them and who also wrote the introduction for the book, thought essentially it was a fantasy. You know, He didn't think they'd actually been abducted by aliens. I don't think they were abducted by aliens either. Um, I think there's an awful lot going on there. Again, people like Martin Cottermeyer have written you know, some really good stuff on this. But I myself always, when I, when I first read the book seriously, I thought there's a weird race thing going on here, you know. The, the the hills are living in a time where it's not easy to be a black and white couple in the United States of America. That's the reality. It's not like today, you know. It, it, you, it, they felt uncomfortable. In fact, in the book, there's another case just mentioned briefly when they were on another lonely highway at another time where a group of teenagers chased them and hassled them. It doesn't say because they were, you know, a multiracial couple, but obviously it's what's implied. Right, um, right. The fact that Barney says they're redheaded Irishmen and, and Benjamin Simon asks him on the couch, why do you say that? Well, because I think they don't, I, I, I know redheaded Irish people don't like people in my race. And I, I want to, if they're going to be friendly to me, I want to be friendly to them. Like I am the redheaded Irishman or something like that. And they're Nazis, they're Nazis. They're dressed like Nazis. Another group, which would be, you know, hostile to Barney's race. And then there's the fact that they couldn't have children. Uh, I I think Barney might have had children from a previous marriage, but Betty Betty and Barney weren't able to have children together, I think. Yeah, that part I did not know. I did not know that part, yeah. For her to have, uh, even though she says it's a strange pregnancy test when she gets the needle in her belly, she's like, that's not how they do it back on Earth. But there's still this... There's still this weird gynecological and reproductive element. I'm sure that it was, you can't imagine that that mightn't have been difficult for them to have dealt with, that they couldn't have children. And then again, the skin color of the beings themselves, gray, which mythologically is half between, 
is half between black and white. I mean, not biologically. Obviously, greys aren't really the result of, you know, somebody who's black and somebody who's white having a baby together. But on a, at a mythical level, it makes total sense. And this is, again, just hypothesis. All of this stuff is just me throwing out ideas, though, because none of us know any of it. So, yeah, there's, there's, but there is something very important about that book and that account. And again, it mightn't have any basis on the fact that they were abducted by ETs, but just somehow that began to inject that idea and of course there was a tv movie made afterwards and then we start to see more abduction accounts become more and more like the hills one until we get of course into the mid 80s when we have you know streber and hopkins you know dominating the new york times bestseller and then everybody seller lists and then everybody knows what it looks like but before betty and barney hill nobody knew what an alien abduction looked like ah except people who watch science fiction movies because yeah. of course killers from space and invaders from mars had all those tropes in them kind of or a lot of them anyway so well before betty and barney you have orthon you have you know you have adamski's venusians and you have these space brothers. I mean, this is basically what you have, the contact T movement. Uh, and then after, yes, I mean, from Betty and Barney Hill on, the gray aliens begin to come into the picture more and more and more. And it's interesting. The movie, I think, is called The UFO Incident, I think. It's interesting because one of the uh, criticisms or the skeptic criticisms of the Travis Walton case is that they saw that movie, him and the other logging crew guys, and that they made the whole thing up to cash in on some National Enquirer thing. So it's interesting that that movie was being, had been shown before the Travis Walton case hit. I mean, make that what of that what you will. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I don't make any judgments on that, but, um, as far as the Betty and Barney Hill case, I often wonder, you know, I I lean towards the more kind of the the, the mind control kind of uh, theory on that 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 hypothesis. Um, it it almost really has just about no real evidence, just as much as the alien hypothesis does. But it fits in. You can kind of bring it much more down to earth with that hypothesis. It's interesting because when you really look at it. What they see before, you mentioned the the guys with the big nose that look like Jimmy Durante, and they're they're really looking at. They said that they saw these five foot to five foot five inch guys, and I mean that's not that's normal size probably for that time period. It's normal size now for a lot of people, and it just seems that they were that that's what they encountered, and then when they start having these dreams, and that morphs into the aliens and. There is that camp in the alien abduction literature that would say, well, when they saw Jimmy Durante looking guy, short little guys, that was the the screen memory. The real memory is the actual aliens. Well, I mean, I would say that, well, it's probably the other way around. And them being a mixed race couple in 1961, not only that, but the fact that they were activists in their community would have made them targets possibly by whatever organization maybe the cia i mean there was COINTELPRO, which was fbi that was going around on at the same time uh so and and just as, as you said there was a history of harassment against them too so it, there's just some weird aspects to it um one of the things that struck me was 
you know, Betty asked the leader person, he asked, she asked him, uh, can I take that book home? And he tells her she can take the book home. Well, there's, there's never a book, you know, and it just seems like to me that, that this is something she was probably saying. It's like in like kind of this really drugged up state. And she has this real pleasant experience where Barney has this horrifying experience. And it almost seems like they're, like they're testing two different things or they're testing the, the, what would happen to these people. And then the dreams come and then they go, what I didn't really know about the case was that they, I thought everything came out with Dr. Simon and it does. But what happens is like they go to the media. I think they go to NICAP, I believe they go to NICAP, they go to the media, they start talking about it. Then Simon becomes interested in the case and he's the one that brings all this stuff out in hypnosis. Simon's interesting too because Simon was he was a he was a he was an army doctor. And one interesting thing that I found out just doing the research for something else I've been doing is that he was a consultant on a film by John Huston called Let There Be Light, which was about these World War II soldiers. It was a documentary coming home from World War II dealing with PTSD. And, you know, hypnosis was a technique used for PTSD. So I found that is it just just these kind of interesting connections. And, you know, th- that could be another one of these things that just like whatever our intelligence agencies were doing, these experiments that were going on, you know, they didn't mean to, but they probably unleashed this yeah. this kind of meme onto the culture so and it's not only a cover for the ufo mythos isn't only a cover for potential technology but it's a cover for experimentation on yeah, civilians yeah and and, and fuller is interesting too i actually get this from nick redford so all credit to him and we've talked about it on this show fuller is interesting because he wrote before he wrote interrupted journey he wrote this other book called the day of saint anthony's fire and that was a book about that village in France that supposedly ate bad ergot and started experiencing all these hallucinations. But incidentally, across the Swiss border was a manufacturing plant that made LSD. And this uh, village had some communist sympathies. And this was about in like the 1940s. And I believe like Frank Olson was involved, who later, you know, falls to his death. If you're familiar with that, that whole thing, that's kind of tangential. But Fuller also made this statement about uh, that Richard Helms was going to give him and he was going to write a book about the MKUltra stuff. Well, the book he instead writes is Interrupted Journey. So it's... (sighs) I mean, it's all very circumstantial, but it's just like it, 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 there's there is somewhat, I think, of a uh, an alternate hypothesis that what 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 could have happened, and what you were saying kind of think kind of lends to it because all these different psycho it, it, everything that that you're saying is like it's it's very psychological. And these could have been the perfect people to mess with psychologically. Yeah, that's fascinating. Interestingly, 
talking about helms and talking about maybe some government operation to to hoax an alien abduction richard doty i believe says he knows richard helms and spent some time with him he also he also talks about government psyop alien abductions now take that you know take both of those with a grain of salt perhaps but there you go there's a we, we were only talking about Dodie and the Avery before so there's another roundabout connection to the type of the type of theory that you just put forward and again these things I think it's worth speculating about all of these things because it's I believe speaking about Joshua Kutch and I saw a post he did I won't go into anything personal about because it, it wasn't personal but he was just essentially said that you know, people often put down theoreticians in this field and they want more people out there with boots on the ground. I actually think we need the reverse. I think there's so much noisy data. There's just piles and piles of it and people out there gathering another UFO story from another UFO witness to add to a catalog of hundreds of thousands of these things already. I don't see how that's got us any closer to anything. I think there's real, I'm not saying people shouldn't be investigating, you know, whatever, but to suggest that that's where the value is after people doing this for the last, you know, 80 years. I'm not sure if that is where the value is. I think more people need to be thinking about these type of alternative theories and looking at the data we already have and seeing what ties into this type of speculation and what doesn't. Maybe that's a better way forward. I, to be honest, I think the only two ways forward, if there is a genuine, there's again, I think there's multiple I don't think there's one phenomenon. I think there's multiple phenomena which get wrapped up in the UFO phenomenon. But if there's, if there is an intelligence behind some of it, whether it's, you know, US psyops or whether it's the fairies or whether it's extraterrestrials or whatever it is, there's probably only two people who are going to probably work it out. I don't think the investigator on the ground really is. I think it's probably going to be a theoretician who starts putting it together, or maybe a witness will have a or an experience that will have a real solid moment where it coalesces. But of course, the problem is the witnesses' perceptions have already been so clouded by cultural expectations that you can't ever even tell if what the witness is telling you actually is what happened or not. So maybe that throws it back again to the theoreticians. I don't think there's enough theoreticians spinning different ideas. I think there's some people doing great work. I think Greg Bishop's doing great work. I think people like Martin Kotomai have done great work. I think Joshua Kuchin, who we were talking about, is doing great work. I think people like you guys throwing out these ideas are doing great work. That's needed more than somebody recording another UFO experience, to be honest. And I know that's unpopular to say, but it's true. You need someone you, you need someone to collect the data and you need someone to sort through it. Yeah. And there's not enough people sorting through it, I don't think. Yeah. And there's not enough people. See, here's the thing, too. If there is, if the US government is actively interested and involved in this, other than covering up or playing a psyop, like if there is some, if there is something they're genuinely concerned about, you know, they're sitting down, you know, like with, you know, Rand Institute type people wargaming what the realities are, you know, that's probably what the community should be doing more, you know. Rather than just standing in the craters of the thought bombs, like I mentioned before, or just following the ETH on the never-ending, you know, path to supposed disclosure, which again we have to turn back to the government to get. There's also with the experimentation, the MK Ultra mind control stuff, I and mean, the use of hallucinogens. You you could take it to a whole other level in the fact that maybe because they did go into an altered state of consciousness. Our hypnosis can also cause an ultra state of consciousness. They actually are contacting something. I mean, that's a whole other that's a whole other scan of worms. But it, it's it, 
you just have to i think you really got to like you know the, the the mind control stuff appeals to me because i think that that it makes sense in a lot of different ways just it's the same way that certain aspects of like the roswell case that you can explain some of it um you know as as some kind of you know experimental aircraft that wasn't a weather balloon or this type of thing yeah, certainly Nick Redfern writes about a more insidious Earth-based yeah. conspiracy behind Roswell in what's it called, Body Snatches in the Desert, which is right. a, a very, right. a very interesting book. Yeah, I, and Terence McKenna, of course, suggests that altered states of consciousness might get us through to to something on the other side. And I love those. I love theoreticians, and I love ideas, and I love people who aren't one hundred percent certain and. When you were talking about whether it's a psyop or whether it's opening our eyes to something else, one particular person who came to mind is P.K. Dick. And I think P.K. Dick has a lot to tell us about the UFO mystery inadvertently. He doesn't talk about it a whole lot, although he does mention it a little bit in his exegesis. And that is his his Valus experience or his Val or his zebra experience when he was supposedly suffering from acute dental pain and the pharmacist shipped him some pain medication. And when the delivery gal came to the door, she was wearing a Christian fish necklace. And out of that necklace, he got hit in the middle of the eye by some pink beam of light. And all of a sudden he saw that he might've really have been kind of living both in 1970s America and also in, you know, ancient Rome as a Gnostic underground Christian and reality kind of, you know, collapsed for him. But going forward, he had all these different ideas of what the source of this intelligence was. Was it some living sentient plasma, like, you know, a messianic God being, or was it the Soviets operating some kind of mind control system on him or was it just an extraterrestrial satellite beaming down messages so again that's the value of of looking at things theoretically starting to spin out all these different ideas what might it be not just we know it's extraterrestrial so that's what we're going to write every book about how do you know it's extraterrestrial how does john keel know it's as much as i love him how does he know it's the super spectrum you know how do how do i don't know mac tonnies know it's you know uh a parallel race living on earth. You know, we don't know any of this stuff, but unless we start playing with ideas more comfortably and, and looking at how, as you said before, the people who've collected the data, how that data might fit these ideas. Um, and that's problematic too, to be honest, because the, the data is so noisy. I mean, it's, it's so difficult to even get signal out of the noise. And I think that's something Valet was always, that was probably one of the most valuable things Valet was conscious of. And he was very valuable. He still is. But to, to just point out how noisy this, the, the data is, like, where's the signal? How do you find the signal? Yeah, it's a very good point. Kind of move on about the books as well. Uh, you mentioned one, uh, Great God Pan. I guess this is more of a fiction type of story. Yeah, that's the that's the um, the famous Macon uh, novel novella, I guess, short story. But it's interesting that um, that Macon came to um, be so involved in the occult movement. He became a member of the Golden Dawn, and Berger and Powell's in their Morning of the Magicians suggests that. Well, they say actually that, um, you know, occultists were telling him that he'd somehow kind of cracked the code without having to do any esoteric rituals. Like that book described exactly what the reality was. And that book essentially is that without making it a very long story, a scientist works out a way of 
reaching or thinking he's able to let somebody reach some kind of spiritual, you know, level of nirvana or, you know, high awareness, but it actually drives the woman insane. And then as a result, the child that she has is somehow um, connected with the supernatural or part supernatural and that, that all this almost surgical ritual then goes on to affect all these different people. And I, I suppose that very much does ring true with a lot of occult ideas that you can, you know, that you can achieve something by, you know, fiddle, especially today, you can achieve something by putting on the God helmet, you know, you can affect the brain to have a, a religious experience or, a, you know, this alternative experience. So I still think, I still think Mackin's great God Pan is worth reading. And certainly a lot of occultists in the late 19th, early 20th century thought that he discovered something important in that book. So did Lovecraft, of course, who was, who was influenced extensively by Mackin. You described it as like a, it was kind of a, a symbol for this kind of old undercurrent or older belief system that permeated. Yeah. So the, of course, Pan's kind of, I guess, we all know who the great God Pan is, you know, but he's kind of, I guess, yeah. And in that book, whether he's real or not, he's an allegory for this other force, you know, that comes, that comes through by interfering with one woman's brain. And then it kind of opens, you know, the, the doorway to the other side, which of course we also see in Lovecraft, plenty of Lovecraft stories like From Beyond would be an example of another way of scientifically manipulating the brain to let us you know, see what was on the other side. So perhaps because in that period of, you know, in, in the late 19th and when Lovecraft's writing into the, the early 20th century, science has tended to surpass religion, but there's still this maybe hope mm-hmm. that we can get to that state we want to get to through some quasi-scientific methodology. And by the way, Lovecraft was a total atheist. He didn't believe any of that. He was just writing cool, weird fiction. But Mackin certainly was a genuine, you know, believer in in the other side and, you know, the 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 power of, you know, occult ritual and the like. But it certainly seeped its way. And it's interesting, and we were talking about UFO mm-hmm. fiction being, you know, interconnected with UFO belief. This this interconnectedness, of course, goes back to the 19th century because you look at people like um, the poet, the Irish poet Yeats, you know, who, who who does more than anyone else to popularize fairy lore. Who's also a member of the Golden Dawn. Or you look at Macken, who's writing this this occult type of story, but then it goes on to actually impact beliefs of other occultists. So there's this weird give and take between sometimes the imagination of of the writer and that kind of deeper occultic imaginal, sometimes they intersect, which I find fascinating, actually, that there is that connection. Maybe our imagination, you know, as as occultists said about Mac, and maybe we find the doors through other ways sometimes anyway, ways that we're not expecting. Another one that interests me that you talk about, um, Dragon and the Disc. This is the uh, F.W. Holiday, also author of the Goblin Universe, which I've talked about on the show before. Oh, they're both great books. Yeah. yeah, the Dragon and the Disc's fantastic. Of course, it um, it comes. It's a. It's. I love books which were a real. And I talk about this sometimes on the, my old show, My Weird Library. And now I do a new version with a, with a, with another host, Jason McLean, called um, called Mysterious Library. So we go a little bit more in depth now. But uh, what I love is, is these books, which were a real product of their time. I mean, you can argue every piece of literature is a product of its time, but the ones that you can clearly see, aha, uh-huh. because Dragon the Disc, I think, is a fantastic book. 
Yet you can still at the same time see that it's very much influenced by von Daniken or the idea that ancient cultures and ancient artwork and ancient, you know, structures have been misinterpreted by mainstream archaeology. So the point that Holiday makes in that book is that the title, The Dragon and the Disc, is his term for what he believes was a Bronze Age religion in the British Isles. And they worshipped essentially the disc, which was, he believed, like literal flying saucer type things, but he looked at, at archaeological evidence, which previous people had said were representations of the sun or the moon or female breasts, and they're really representations of flying saucers. And then he looked at the other side, which he thought was the more satanic side, so the disc was the more godly side, the the um, the dragon was the more satanic side, and he suggested that the dragons may have been literal, like they may have been, as he suggested in his book before, that I think the Great Orm of Loch Ness or whatever it's called, that these might have been carboniferous giant worms or something, but that people encountering them labeled them dragons of the day, and they were the dark side, the dark balance too. The disc. So all of this, you know, Neolithic or Bronze Age, you know, artwork has these two different types of tropes attached throughout. And of course, by the end of the book, he starts to speculate more and say, well, maybe, maybe these things are related, and maybe it's also related to ghosts, and maybe it's also related to, you know, to all type the fairies, all types of paranormal phenomena. Maybe there's a root source that all of this is coming out of. So. And that, of course, is also clearly influenced probably by John Keel, who I think Operation Trojan Horse hadn't come out that long before, and they were certainly colleagues. They communicated back and forth. But it's such a more interesting way of looking at the Loch Ness Monster, you know, of, of drawing this wonderful historical bow and saying this is part of this old tradition of the dragon and the disc, and maybe they're somehow related in this tableau of, of weirdness and high strangeness, which all of the mythology we have comes from the, the same source. It's much more interesting than a book which says it's a plesiosaur, you know, at least for me. Right. So, the whale theory is interesting, but that, does- that's Ken Gerhardt's main theory. I think there's a prehistoric whale, right? I think that's what, what, what Ken's put forward. I think, I mean, people put it forward before him, but I think that's the one he likes the most. Does he mention Crowley and Beliskin house? Does he mention that? In uh, yeah, the you know, I, sh- I should. Yeah. I think, I think in, in, I think in one of his things that talks about, um, Maybe I read it elsewhere, though. That's the problem when you read so much of this stuff. I'm, I'm trying to think if, if he talks about um, the scroll thing that's discovered in Crowley's, you know, is it in the graveyard or near the old house or something, which is some ritualistic thing. Um, I'm trying to remember, you know, to answer your question. I don't want I think so, but I don't want to say yes. I want to go back to the great God pan a little bit and – um, contrast that with the UFO mythology that we're talking about, and maybe we're not too much further from those ideas from the turn of the 19th to 20th century where the people were feeling that technology was approaching the paranormal. Maybe the similar kind of thing is going on with UFOs. I think you're absolutely right. I think that the, I think that when we look at any of these type of 19th century and onwards traditions. You can't divide it from whether people who are believing it or putting it forward very much believe in technology and scientific advancements or whether they're writing in response to scientific and technological advancements. The 
the movement of modernity towards this more positivistic, scientistic type of reality impacted every belief system, really, in occultism up to ufology. You even see it in theosophy, like Madame Blavatsky's, you know, root racist stuff, you know, where she talks about different root races. It's all mumbo jumbo, but she's clearly being influenced by, you know, by scientific and archaeological mm. type developments of the day and trying to go in her own direction. And I, I would argue that today, if anything, ufology is the most is the most perfect example of that because you get the theosophical elements and the occult yeah. elements travel through, you know, the underground occult California scene up until 1950s. And then People like George Adamski, we were mentioning Orthon, his beautiful blonde-haired space brother before that he bumped into, is just a technological version of the Ascended Masters in Theosophy. Yeah. So I don't, yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right. All of ufology has such a combination of traditional, older, occult and religious belief systems just mingled in mm -hmm. with science fiction and our assumption of what space travel is or what the future is going to look like. It seems like it's a kind of continuation of the same project that a lot of what theosophy and, and spiritualism was and trying to create this synthesis of uh, spirituality and materialism in order to avoid the excesses of religious fanaticism on one side and the, you know, the dangers of strict materialism on the other side. And I guess that's the same project really of, of Adam Weishaft and the Illuminati and what he was talking about, which we'll go to later, but you can kind of see that as a continuum and maybe people like um, the Avery or these people who are building these, these modern day myths do have some kind of larger project that they're, you know, trying to combat uh, modernity or materialism with by keeping these same ideas kind of alive. I'm open to that too. That, that is interesting. I think if people are sitting back trying to, yeah, work out some fuse, fusion to go forward to keep a richer belief system. I mean, I, I, I'm not close to that, but I tend to be a little more cynical. I tend to I tend to be honest. If I if I favor either side, I favor the non-materialist side when it comes to the explanation of these things more so. And as somebody who has a great interest in Charles Ford, of course, as well, who's really the grandfather of ufology and people of the, I mean, one of his biographies, he's even called, I think, the subtitle, the inventor of the supernatural. So, which is, which is a massive exaggeration. But my point is Ford's thinking mm -hmm. certainly impacted the way that we look at the paranormal and we look at things today, but it, it, it didn't impact it. I think the way Fort wanted it to, I think people who walk around today calling themselves Fortians use it as a, a phrase to mean, well, we know Fortian phenomena thanks to Fortian times, keeping it popular, which is a wonderful, the term popular, which is a wonderful magazine. We know Fortian phenomena can be, Fortian phenomena can be everything from ghosts to UFOs to Bigfoot to everything in between. I'm interested in all those things. So I'm a Fortian, but of course, Charles Fort used the data which had been ignored by science, the stories that he culled from journals and newspapers, as proof that the scientific paradigm mm -hmm. was incapable of dealing with anomalous phenomena which was knocking at its door. It was the damned data, as he called it. They just ignore it. So what I find terribly ironic and terribly frustrating is people who are Fordians still want to be led into the scientific institution. 
which, mm-hmm. you know, the scientific establishment rather, which Ford absolutely despised. And so ghost hunters are out there with, you know, electronic equipment trying to prove this and the other. Ufologists want the government to tell them they have an ashtray from the Roswell crash, you know, stored in Hangar 18 or Area 51. Bigfoot people want to get that irrefutable DNA sample or right. body or whatever. They're all still so desperately want to be included within the scientific establishment. So you're right. Some of this is a fusion, but I think it's a fusion, which is, which misunderstands the warnings that Fort gave us a hundred years ago. The science is never letting you guys in. That isn't the way the paradigm works. You're not getting in. Yeah. I feel the same way about a lot of like the uh, speculative archeological stuff and, and a lot of these things that are more of a spirit quest and, you know, that's fine to go on your spirit quest, but you're not going to get the Academy to co-sign it. And that's that should be okay. Um, but if you don't want to, you know, work within those confines, then it's it's a lot more free, open uh, open world of inquiry if, if you want to break out of that. But you can't have the same uh, respect and trappings, you know. Yeah, and everybody wants to be the person who found Bigfoot or proved UFOs are real or got that irrefutable ghost evidence. I mean, that well, not everybody, but that seems to be an awful lot of of what researchers in the community are trying to do. Which it's just it's a fool's errand. They've I think most of this stuff's ineffable. To be honest, I think, and this is this sounds really negative. I think it's all ineffable. I don't think we're ever going to work any of this stuff. Maybe when we die. We'll know what some of this stuff is, you know. If there is, you know, somewhere we go, I think there probably is. Um, but I don't think in this world we're going to work any of it out. I mean, we can have faith in what it is, the same way that people who followed the fairy faith thought, okay, we understand what these things are, and this is how we interact with them. But um, there's no way of actually knowing. How are we going to know any of this ever? We're not. I always love the Philip Class curse, you know, that he leveled against ufology back in the 80s or the ufologists who hate him. The great skeptic Philip Class said, you know, I, I make this curse, you know, against all of those who've, I don't know, who've ever given me a hard time in ufology. No matter how long you live or how long you work or da da da, you'll die being no closer to the mystery than you are now. That's paraphrasing it. Class was much funnier the way he wrote it, but it's essentially true. What ufologist who's ever chased this stuff has become any closer to the mystery? They might say they have, but nobody else thinks it, unless they're a believer. Nobody in our generation is getting any closer. I'll take that. You can take that to the bank. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Uh, one last book, because I know you you got to get going to your do your show, but uh, The Illuminoids, uh, Serfiel actually has a copy of this. So I thought this, that was interesting that you did a uh, video on that. Yeah, Wilgus's book is great. It's it's, and obviously he's so influenced by Robert Anton Wilson, who at the time had um, had written um, the Illuminatus uh, trilogy, which was this. I haven't read it for years, but it's hilarious. Um, and he'd also, of course, did um, Final Cosmic Trigger, Final Secret of the Illuminati, around the same time that Wilgus did that. And it's it's. It was written in such a paranoid time. You know, I think that they came out in the early 70s. So we're in this whole period where, you know, there's the Vietnam War and nobody trusts Nixon and everything. Just you see that kind of slide in American culture. It's post-Condon as well. Nobody trusts anybody. So these ideas like the Illuminati are coming front and center again, literally in some people's belief systems. Like, mm-hmm. um, And I think some of it, incidentally, I'm not, I don't want to say that I don't think any conspiracy theories have any value because to think that there isn't there there aren't sometimes powerful people or non-powerful people sitting together in a room trying to get their way is just 
is just ridiculous. But I do find it interesting. And in that period, all of this stuff really became super popular again, you know, mm-hmm. And organizations like the John Birch Society, for example, the um, None Dare Call It Conspiracy was like a best-selling book, the Gary Allen book, just a best-selling book. And incidentally, a lot of that stuff now looks pretty accurate. I mean, forget about the actual, maybe what the conspiracy want, but when when people like the Bircherites were talking about roundtable groups and, you know, NGOs deciding policy, everybody was like, that's not the way democracy works. You're crazy. Now, on a, who today doesn't think that's the way that things work? Who today really thinks that foreign policy and domestic policy isn't half decided at these type of a Davos or somewhere? You know, because it's the reality it is. It's why you get the same talking points. Yeah. It's why you heard build back better out of the mouths of almost every leader in the free world. Did they did they just all did they did their PR writer just all decide build back better was the phrase that was our new phrase? Or did did that was that a talking point that came down? Whatever the reason, it was a talking point that came down. But this sounded crazy when the Birchrights were writing about it. It sounded like nuts. No, nope, that's not how America works. Well, I, I think most people are aware now that is pretty much how things work. So so there's my there's my real conspiratorial uh, position for conspiranormal. So <laughs> That's totally fine. I mean, that's one of those things that, um, you know, is is definitely out there. And I, I don't, I, that's one of the things that I just don't, don't find like too surprising, really. Um, and you, you definitely have like uh, things like Bohemian Grove as well that, you know, that's, um, there's policy is made in other ways than just than people normally think that like the government functions there's definitely extra governmental things and you brought up in that like tragedy and hope and carol quigley and how um he felt that actually they should come out in the open because you know he really admired i guess he was really talking about like the roundtable groups and all that well the anglo-american establishment that was his uh that was what he wrote about yeah, from Cecil Rhodes on down, you know. And, of course, Carol Quigley, which is just so hilarious, was a mentor at Georgetown to, to Bill Clinton. So when Bill Clinton's president, he makes a oh, number yeah. of speeches. Oh, I'd like to thank Carol Quigley. And, of course, all the John Bircherite people who'd you know, been reading about Carol Quigley for, forever were like, this is some kind of code. It's the same way as when George Bush would say, we we're preparing for a new world order. All the people who were the Bircherites mm-hmm. were like, they're saying it in the open. It was the same when, uh, it was the same when Clinton yeah, talked I think about my, Carol Quigley. Quickly, I think my bootleg copy of Tragedy and Hope has a Bill Clinton quote on the back. I think they they started doing that. I've got an. I think I've got an old one. So it's before Clinton was. Um, it's before Clinton, but that's fascinating that they've got it on there now. That's yeah, awesome. Now they just do that. Well, Dean, this has been uh, this has been great. I mean, uh, we really enjoyed talking to you tonight and uh, getting to know you a little bit. Can you tell people where they can find you? And uh, you're doing a couple of different video shows, really. I mean, YouTube. I mean, and I know that they're also in podcast form as well. Yeah, thank you. We, we've. I've been doing with my girlfriend a show called Talking Weird now for, I don't know, we must be going on almost three years. We've just moved that to the Untold Radio Network, which you can, I believe it's untoldradioam.com or go and find it on Facebook or YouTube. So we've just moved now. We've only done one show. There, uh, Untold Radio AM is the brainchild of Doug Hycheck, the creator of Monster Quest. He's created this new podcast network, which we're just delighted to be a part of. So you can watch that live every Saturday night at 11. No, we're now 10 p.m. Central. We're an hour earlier. So 10 p.m. Central, you can watch that on YouTube, on Facebook. I think it even might hit, it hit Twitter, or you can download the audio podcast later. And also my new show, which I'm just about to record the second episode for tonight, also 
on uh, Untold Radio Network, which, as you kindly mentioned before, Adam, a number of times, used to be a little show called um, My Weird Library, where I just talked to camera for, you know, 10 to 15 minutes about a book I dug. And you can still find that on the Talking Weird page on YouTube. But the new show, um, the new the new show Mysterious Library is also on the Untold Radio Network, and that's live every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. And then afterwards, it goes out to podcasts as well. But you can watch it on YouTube or Facebook also at the Untold Radio AM pages, which is easy to find. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Dean, for coming on. We'd like to remind everybody that Strange Realities Conference is coming up October 14th through the 16th in Nashville, Tennessee, and also online. $70 for in-person tickets and $30 to get those online tickets. Serfiel can tell you where to also find our Patreon. We've been a little lax on putting stuff up there lately, but if you guys want to support us, there's plenty of stuff there. We're going, away, going back to 2016, so... Yeah, you yourself can become an Illuminoid by joining our Patreon at the various levels of initiation for a fee, of course, with the International Association of Conspiranormalists, the Mystic Crew of Conspiranormal, and the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities. Check us out at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. All right, guys, we want to thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. Uh, well, next time we'll be continuing on with our strange realities previews on conspiranormal strangerealitiesconference.com mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.